FR BostonFreeRadio.com I'd like to give a shout out to Young Carts for allowing us to use that intro for our show and for being our titular theme song. It, we couldn't have done this without you. Your generosity for your music to be used in non-commercial licensing is crucial to open and free expression. It is crucial to free culture and is crucial to the development of the counterculture. And we couldn't have done it without you, Young Carts. And I thank you especially for helping us get the show started. And hopefully we can uh, do a special segment where we can interview you. We'll see. Stay tuned. We have so much coming your way, but what I'd like to remind you is that we rely on your support. We rely on you listening to us. We rely on your shares. We rely on your word of mouth. But most importantly, we also rely on your support for building up the podcast to what it should be, which is we are a live radio show. But we're also looking to do live shows, live shows in your hometown, in your area. And we'd love to see you. Yes, we can do that. And we need your help to do so. Visit patreon.com slash GS Hamlin. And you can learn more about our efforts to raise some money to make Wildcast even bigger. And we can't do it without your help. And we hope to see you there. Stay tuned. You see what happened to Bobby Schmurda, right? And Bobby Schmurda got fat joed. These people, these police, they try to set me up so many times, my nigga. They didn't like who I was, who I stood for. I wasn't this much of a nice guy or conscious when I first was out here acting crazy. They wanted to get me like him, but they got him. Mm. One million percent, they are plotting on you, my nigga. You got a lot of energy around you. So the question is, do you want to be successful? Do you want to be the king? Do you want to be rich? Do you want to take care of your family? What do you want to do? Because I got to tell you, as an OG, as a nigga be around, I be lying to myself if I ain't tell you, yo, B, one move, they're going to try to throw you in there. Mm-hmm. Big time. Do you understand this? Nah, I know. Having just a renewed vision of what's to come in the next 30 to 35 years. We had a 29-year-old congresswoman, Alessandria Ocasio-Cortez, open up on Instagram and basically just allowed herself to be tarred and feathered for us. I'm referring to this uh, character assassination on her behalf regarding her finances, regarding $7,000 in savings that she had. Now, for a substantial amount of financial advisors, they recommend that that's not enough. That at this point in her life, she should have had 30 k in her savings to be sure that she can warrant 
six months worth of uh, rent and expenses. And now, both things could be true. We could spare these advisors some shame by saying that it is advisable to have that amount saved. That being said, it is ill-advised to presume that that which is preferable or advisable is universally achievable. And I think that's kind of why she's winning people over. Stay tuned. So, more than anything, what stands out from Thanksgiving this year in my household, albeit far from my household, is spending the time to give back to my alumni community. But most importantly, what I care about is the community at large by which my university serves, refuse to serve, or are unable to serve. This Thanksgiving, along with the President Emeritus of the Harvard Latino Alumni Alliance, a friend of mine, we together at his place hosted an annual Thanksgiving pachanga for all students, undergrad, grad students, and they were welcomed in order to feel welcomed. Because it is always presumed that seeking means, seeking the opportunity for prosperity, comes with an opportunity cost. And this is something that I've always thought was never really, you can't really explain that, or you can't really capture that. I know when it came to my undergraduate experience, I more than ever felt really alone. Not necessarily the most alone. I have friends. I have family. But I didn't have anyone who was going through exactly what I was going through. Nor did I necessarily feel in those circles of friends that I had that could directly speak to my Latin American immigrant experience on campus. And if they were, it was really siloed. But what I love about this tradition and how I feel proud to be, at least in this year and in this instant, involved is being able to delve deeper into the promise of this country, the promise of this university, and the promise of what's to come with our leadership and its development inclusion, and ultimately mastering the opportunity invested in us. Stay tuned. So for those of you who subscribe to our Patreon, for those of you who follow us closely, we are getting close and close to really expanding the Growcast nationally. Now, you got to start local. Growcast started with some uh, rebroadcasts on WBCA 102.9 FM. You know, over in our uh, sister station over at Boston Neighborhood Network. You know, I was fortunate to be able to expand it over to Watertown as well. Watertown has an online radio station, and you should check them out. And the Growcast is now there, along with other po- along with other notable podcasts. And I'm so fortunate. I'm so happy to be a proud to to be a part of this uh, expansion of the Growcast into other stations. But also, we're expanding to. We're expanding beyond the Northeast region, but we're also focusing on the Northeast region because, quite frankly, that's a lot easier to tour. Yes, the Guaucast is thinking of touring, and the reason why we think to tour 
is to talk to different people, but also to talk to different uh, listeners who may or may not be able to, who may or may not be able to attend local shows. So I'd like to give a shout out to Activate Radio, WCAC Radio in Watertown, as well as WBCA 102.9 FM for rebroadcasting episodes of the Growlcast. Uh, we have more to come. We have a lot more stations that are expanding our reach, and that includes parts of Western Mass, parts of Middle Mass, as well as potentially, potentially, parts of New York, Connecticut, New Jersey, Maine, and Vermont. Now, I'm so excited to be sharing this with you, but the purpose for rebroadcasting these stations outside of the state of Massachusetts is to tour. Because as a podcaster, there's nothing more fun than going to a new city, recording some audio, and meeting new people. And we can't do it without you. Please check out our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash for the ability to see what it is that we're doing, how we're expanding, and different tiers that allow you to invest into the Growlcast. You wouldn't want to miss it. And quite frankly, you wouldn't want to miss out on these perks, benefits, as well as opportunities to be on the show, to be involved with creating content with the show, but most importantly, being the show. And we can't do it without you. Stay tuned. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to be spending my Thanksgiving with a bunch of Harvard students, grad students, potentially even alums, who themselves, for some reason, either can't go back home, are unable to, or unwilling to. The thing is that ultimately, what is under advisement is to just allow them to celebrate. Celebrate the opportunity of rest, to celebrate the opportunity of family, even if that doesn't necessarily mean your biological family, but one's extended family or friendship family. My advice to them, as well as new alums, is to stay weird, to bask in it, stay involved. Because about five years ago, I finally breathed a sigh of relief as a student who had accomplished pulling off a fully authenticated bachelor's from Harvard University. The road to get there was paved with mental health worries and peer-induced imposter's dilemma. I was an outlier here, not just as a Latin American, Paraguayan as but customizing my own undergraduate experience as a non-traditional student. See, I was, I was accepted into the Harvard Extension School, and it allowed me the opportunity to grow in my career path concurrently with my undergraduate education. And it did so unapologetically. And it did so quite young. The truth is, I only know how to be non-traditional. And as they leave the campus, they will too. Because we, these alums, students, grad students, are fortunate to be so reckless to pursue this dream while setting the course for new ones. And in doing the same, we can't let go of this chaos, this patience, and this flame that got us here that will get us there, and ultimately will allow us to invest in our future. The reason why I do this type of work, and the reason why this is another side you see of me, because usually when we play the Guaucast, we're not here talking about university, we're not talking about 
any sort of self-doubt or any sort of student experience, the reason why you're seeing the side of me is because I'm giving thanks to opportunity. I give thanks. I am hydrated. I am relaxed. I am assured. I am empowered by opportunity. And it's something that I don't see enough of. However, within that opportunity comes our responsibility to cultivate that opportunity. There is so much more work left to be accomplished in regards to our Latin American, Latino, and first-generation students. As an alum, I don't feel I can vacate this important role in steering my university for the better. That these students that I will be serving this Thanksgiving will be needed as leaders, potentially weird, unapologetic leaders. And on top of that, I want to thank my family, and by extension, their family, for inspiring them to share themselves with us this, ho this holiday weekend. Especially since, on top of everything else that's been going on in the world, in electoral politics, international, domestic, you know, for those of the listeners who were keen on what's been happening, sending their uh, concerns and wishes and prayers, you know, someone really close to me has had a family emergency. It caused a sudden uh, rebroadcast, causing a slight delay. And it is moments like these that I'm very, very, very happy that the podcast that I'm producing isn't tied to some rigid structure or some rigid punitive measure, but instead has the ebb and flow of life where my listeners and I can always follow up and continue these conversations despite the brief breaks that come our way, whether we ask for them or not, whether we're able to absorb them or not. I am sustained, I am empowered, I am reassured, and ultimately, I am given the ability to rest while others toil in the dark, holding their breath so I can take mine. And for that, I am eternally grateful. All right, so uh, who am I, who am I uh, here with? Who am I graced by? So, uh, my name is Carlos, I'm Benjamin Castellon. What brings you here to this Thanksgiving, Bachanga? So I'm from Los Angeles, I'm from the San Fernando Valley, specifically in North Hollywood. I'm out here pursuing a master's degree. And so I am away from my family for Thanksgiving for the first time. Got a message from someone posting about Ed and him opening his house to fellow Latinos who are out here and either can't afford to go back or are just choosing to stay for whatever reason and looking for some community and some food and a good time. So um, one of the individuals who was in that group chat with me said she was going to come, and originally I wasn't, um, uh, just because like, I'm just kind of shy and stuff. Um, but uh, she said, provide her company, and I said, all right, sure, let's roll up, and that's why I'm here. I love that, let's roll up. <laughs> so I, uh, what I love 
This was my first Thanksgiving pachanga as well. I've been, although I've been involved early on with the uh, Harvard Latino Alumni Alliance. But what I love is, you know, knowing it is that this has been a tradition for about 13 years, which I didn't know. I wish I had known that. I attended the Harvard Extension School from like 2008 to 2013. I wish I would have known about this. I would have gladly have enjoyed some uh, Thanksgiving pachanga, like yeah. Friendsgiving. I, I mean, luckily I was, I was fortunate because I have family in the North Shore in Newburyport and stuff, okay. which is helpful. Uh, traveling, you know, via train, partial tr mm. train and bus to New Jersey to hang out with my family. But if I didn't do that, I would have to stay on campus during yeah. Friendsgiving or something. And it's just wild. It's just I'm happy that uh, I'm happy to see that there's like a good, good amount of turnout for this. Yeah, it's good to see like a bunch of college students, grad students, uh, also alums coming by to really yeah. support this Thanksgiving pachanga. But yeah. tell me more about like your. Uh, your thing. So you're doing. You're in the uh, education policy and management. I uh, know uh, that's my friend. I'm in the higher education program at. Is it higher education administration or higher uh, education management? So it's just called higher education program, but essentially it's uh, for either management or administration. Cool. And, uh, and and what brought you down to that sort of line of work? I know I have been. I, I used to look at like higher education administration as a potential entry into uh, graduate education, but 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 tell me a little bit more about what that means. I. I'm a big fan of higher education, but how does one return to higher education to pursue learning higher education? Yeah. Um, yeah. So just really quickly, I do want to say it is amazing that like there's so many undergrads here um, and who are taking a part in making the food, providing the food. That's so dope. Um, <clears throat> just like thinking about myself, like how shy I was at that age and how introverted much more than I am now. Um, and it's really good to see young people, young people of color stepping out of that comfort zone, building these networks. Um, <clears throat> now, so pursuing higher education administration for myself uh, really started back, um, I would say, about a year and a half ago. Um, so I graduated undergrad in the winter of 2016. And um, I uh, was looking for jobs. Um, I started to work uh, as an undergrad that last year in 2015, 2016, uh, in high school advising, high school outreach through UCLA's early academic outreach program. And uh, essentially, I would go to high schools, uh, specifically in the San Fernando Valley, where I'm from, and just uh, help students talk about college, um, look at their transcripts, see what classes they are in, what classes they need, things of that nature. And so um, once I graduated, I was looking for jobs similar, and I wasn't getting any responses. I went into behavioral therapy for a couple of months, uh, working with kids with autism, and then a job opened up at a community college called Citrus College in glendora california my not my roommate my good friend from undergrad had held that position and he was moving on to a full-time job and that was part-time and he said he knew i was applying to um similar type roles the role was advising um for a trio student support services program which is a grant program u.s department of education grant program and um he knew i was wanted to work in education he said look I can guarantee that my boss will get your resume. Um, but at that point, like, it's up to her. She wants to interview you and this and that. But for sure, she'll get your, your resume, which was way better than me applying and going through human re resources and all that, right? Um, so I said, sure. And um, got the interview, got the job, um, and was doing that for a year. 
Um, so from 2000, November 2016 to November 2017. And at that point, I was thinking about graduate school. Um, the role was very college, the role was very advising-like, right? So naturally, I felt like the next step would be to be a college counselor. Um, and so I was looking at jobs to be a college counselor. Uh, I mean, looking at programs to earn my degree to be a college counselor. But I also, in that role, always felt like I wanted to do more than just college counseling, right? And when I say college counselor, in context, it means um, sh working with students on their education plans, which feature like what classes, what major they are, what classes they need, what school they want to transfer to, and what those requirements are. Um, and so in the role I was doing, I wasn't doing that because you need a degree for that, but I was doing um, all these different things that ranged from um, either workshops or financial literacy or talking about um, career exploration, different things like that. And so I realized that I wanted to be more than just a counselor. And um, I figured, well, what else is there to be administration? Um, and so I started to think about what myself would look like as an administrator, um, working with first-generation low-income students, um, primary La Latina, Latino, Latinx students. Um, and I thought, uh, looking at my own program and seeing how um, there could be more culturally-based um, components to it, whether it's workshops, whether it's events, whatever the case may be. Um, so I thought about this administration piece more. And as time was coming to apply to schools, I applied to college counseling programs as well as one higher education program, which is administration, uh, which is Harvard's. Um, and so I got admitted to two college counseling programs, um, USC's program and Counseling Northridge's program. Um, both two-year programs, uh, and then I got admitted here to Harvard's higher education program. And there um, was this decision, right? I had these few months. I got admitted to all three in, like, March, and I had up until the end of April to decide. Um, and so that time I was spent on which career path I wanted to go. Um, the other two would have given me that counseling degree and immediately put me in a position to be a college counselor um, with the intention of eventually going into administration um, or skipping the counseling piece and going right into administration. And this is all hoping that I will go right into high-level administration after I graduate from here. What, ha what about your undergraduate experience shaped your insight, your vision, and the direction by which you wish to counsel students in their uh, higher education pursuits? Yeah, so um, myself, so I have two older brothers. Um, both went attended public schooling in LAUSD, um, and they were both had different outcomes, right? My oldest brother um, was in Catholic schools, actually, um, K-8, and then high school, and then he went right into Cal State Northridge. Um, my older brother, so the middle one between myself and my oldest, he started off in LAUSD schools, then went to, um, uh, public high school in, um, LA. And unfortunately he was, um, he was uh, shot and so he passed away. Um, and so I think my mom really saw, uh, these two different routes and wanted something a lot more different for me. And so she put me, um, at a school in San Fernando Valley in Burbank, 
California, which is an affluent city, um, a really good school. It's called John Burroughs High School. Um, so I graduated middle school and I went there for four years. And in my time there, um, I really didn't take advantage of this well-resourced school. I didn't take advantage of these good teachers, um, as well as the school itself. I think failed to realize the small diversity that was in their school. I wasn't the only Latin student there. I wasn't the only Latino. Um, there was quite a few of us, but I think uh, the school was just concentrate, concentrated on the majority of its students, which were um, Caucasian white students. And uh, I never really felt engaged from the school as well. Um, this is me thinking critically now. At the time, I was just going through school, right? Um but I remember specifically um, prior to senior year, at the beginning of senior year, um, I saw my college counselor and he said, oh, okay, what's your plans uh, for post, post high school? And I said, I plan to uh, just go to community college. Um, um, he kind of looked at me and was like, okay, okay. Um, he um, you know, talked to me about what I needed to do to graduate from the school I was at. And then that was pretty much it. Um, I didn't receive any information on financial aid for community college. I didn't receive any information on um, placement tests for community college. I didn't receive any information on orientation for community college. Nothing. Um, and so some of my peers who were going on to four-year schools, private schools, public schools, UCLA, Pepperdine, Cal, USC, I would hear, oh, yeah, I'm going this, I'm going that. Oh, i got to go talk to my counselor. And I was kind of like, oh, what about myself? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going there, but I still need some information. Or, you know, why isn't he calling me in? So um, there was that experience. And then at community college, I went to Los Angeles Valley College. Um, and uh, my first college counselor appointment um, literally was just um, about the difference between um, what I need for Cal State and what I need for UC, and uh, which where to look for the classes that I should be taking. Uh, and so it was an express appointment. It was, I think, like 20 minutes, um, which is a problem at the community college level um, in terms of how many students there are compared to how many counselors there are. Um, so now at this point, I'm kind of like, well, counselors aren't really helping me. Like, I feel as much... I feel like I know as much as I did walking in as I did walking out of those appointments. And then I had another follow-up one um, sometime in between my final year, which was my fourth year at community college, and my third year um, that summer. And at this point, I have accumulated enough units to transfer. Um, I wasn't sure of a major, but I kind of had an idea of where I was good at, which was history courses. And the counselor, um, I thought I told the counselor, hey, I want to apply to these schools, um, Cal State Northridge, Cal State LA. She said, great, great schools. Uh, you meet the requirements, just apply in October. And I said, um, what about some UCs? Um, you know, maybe UCLA, maybe UCSB. Um, and she said, well, you don't have the grades for that. Uh, I don't think you'll get in, you shouldn't apply. And so I took those experiences um, and I kind of reflected on those way later um, once I started working with the high school students and really listening to what they were saying as well as 
thinking of myself and what I wasn't saying, and maybe some of these students weren't saying. And so I really approached that role um, to try to be as holistic as possible, not just talking about school and grades, but also family. Um, I was working since I was a junior, since I was 16. Um, so a lot of students that were having to work, um, I was able to talk to them about that. And uh, I was able to talk to some of the guys about what school is, about how intimidating higher education might be, about how intimidating it might be to be around others who are doing well um, academically um, in comparison to yourself or what society is kind of saying. Um, I talked to students about um, navigating life in terms of ethnicity and ethnic differences. So I'm Salvadorian. My parents are both from Salvador. And in San Fernando Valley, there's a big Salvadorian population. And the high school I was at did have a lot of Salvadorian students. So I also kind of talked to them about the importance of um, being ethnically aware of things and trying to foster friendships and, communi and community as opposed to traditional um, oppositions with other ethnicities. Um, I talked to them about just the exposure that college gives you to the world. Um, I met so many different students from different places at UCLA. And so, uh, things I never even thought existed, um, or had no idea of, um, I came into contact with at UCLA. And so I really talked about school and higher education a lot more than just books and getting that paper. Um, and so those kinds of things really are what shaped my pursuit of this career i would say awesome so in terms of that like following that how has harvard graduate school of education been for you thus far and is in terms of the culture what is the culture of cambridge mass what is the culture of the university at large uh coming in as a graduate student i know that's a different um entry than some of the people's like say in the college or in the extension school or another the graduate schools um so is there anything that you've noticed that is uh you know, that stood out to you uh, so, getting into uh, this university and the culture there? Yeah. Um, so that's a important question to also provide more context to. Um, probably 100% growing up, um, and I'm talking more adults, so maybe high school and early college, even actually up until UCLA graduation, I never thought about a master's degree. So that's important to say because I didn't engage with master degree talk i didn't engage with advanced degree talk whatsoever um which is unfortunate because at ucla being such a prominent institution um a, a research level one research institution how they call it um a graduate school is talked about a lot it's like around and i think just being at community college for four years and then transferring and just adjusting to school um i didn't have time or the knowledge to think about graduate school uh, it was not a concept for me right so here um and in my process to apply to graduate schools i wasn't thinking about things like culture and and what i would expect from these schools um for me i'm like super first generation and so uh i don't know i just wasn't thinking about those kinds of things um, I, I had the same experience when i went to uh, university here. I was 18 and I just went for it. Yeah. I didn't even think about it. Being born in Paraguay, but first generation, I've only recently been naturalized. But what was fascinating was that 
for me, I, yeah, I didn't even have to think about it. This is just something I had to keep myself busy in because I needed to. Yeah. And it was something that I rationalized in myself and there was no real need to um, pick at it beyond. It was just something I needed to do. And mm-hmm. I agree. Like the culture was the last thing on my mind. The most forefront thing on my mind was um, affording housing, g- getting those schoolwork done and making enough money at the student job I was doing to just cover my costs. Mm-hmm. And that was like the only thing I really focused on. I think now reflecting back on as an alum, that's when these attitudes, these talks of culture really mm-hmm. begin to really um, surface and permeate and really create like a understanding of, of self yeah. following uh, one's education. No, I definitely agree. Um, so applying i i mean i i thought to myself i said well what i know of harvard i'll be honest i didn't even know geographically where it literally was um but what i assumed was it was a uh very hetero or homo um homo homogenous community which i figured was mostly white and uh, male um and at UCLA, I kind of, I was a history major, and a lot of history majors were, like, white male students. Um, so I kind of had experience with that. I went to a white high school um, in an affluent community. So, you know, I think also that's why I was in a thinking of culture, because I was like, well, if it's that or if it's diverse, like, either way, I'll feel okay. Um, but being here, I think specifically at the Graduate School of Education, because I have engaged in a couple of different things at the Kennedy School, and at the law school and the vibes are totally different compared to the ed school um and so at the ed school it is very or it's not very but it's pretty diverse um there's a lot of diverse students um students from different backgrounds different communities different parts of the world and so there specifically i really don't feel this cultural um i don't know cultural what do I would say? Uh, culture shock. Maybe? Culture shock, right? Yeah. Um, and I can't speak too much to Cambridge as a whole. I'm very much um, like just on campus a lot. Um, and if I'm not on campus, I'm um, just like at home. So that's a little bit on me to explore a little bit more. Um, but I do feel that like in those other schools that I mentioned, Kennedy School and the law school, um, there's a little more intensity. There's a little more, um, there's a little bit less of that comfortableness when I'm in those spaces than I do feel at the ed school. Um, and so I think that's the one thing that I'm very surprised at because I didn't feel like ed school would be like that. Man, that's crazy. Well, um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this this yeah. is like a solid amount of time 20 minutes of, oh. of, of like conversation it feel forward. like 20 minutes. yeah i know right it yeah. goes by quickly but thank you so much uh can you uh tell us where any of my listeners could reach you oh so that's one thing is like i'm not on social media oh that's even better that's crazy uh, yeah that's in um, itself a story yeah 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 um I do have um, like a Twitter that I created for a class way in UCLA, but I don't even use it. I just used it for that class. Um, yeah, but 
what I will say is um, please follow or support um, CASA, which is Central American Student Association at Harvard. It's the first time um, this type of organization has been created and officially recognized at Harvard. Um, and it's college-wide, so it's not just me at the ed school. It's a couple of students from different graduate schools and a couple of undergrads, and we really want to get this thing um, noticed. Um, we already had an event that was on the Central American Migrant um, Caravan, uh, and it was a pretty good event, and so we really want to get that going. See, I don't even know how to plug social media. Okay, so, it, so, 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 CASAS, Central Casas, American Association? Yes, C-A-S-A-H. I know we're on Facebook and Instagram, but I can't. Okay, so yeah, so I'll be sure to plug that as well. Thank you, I would appreciate that. Awesome, so thank you so much, and can you remind our viewers what your name is again? Sure, it was Carlos Castellon. Nice to meet you, Carlos Castellon. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Stephanie Suarez. I am currently a grad student at the School of Education in Harvard. I am studying education policy and management, and I have a particular interest um, in working in the field of college access for first-generation low-income students. And uh, why is that? Like, I mean, I know why that (laughs) is a good thing, but what got you into prioritizing college access? for college students, especially first-generation students? Yeah, I think there's a lot of reasons. Uh, For one, I'm a first-generation college student. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And I think I didn't realize how much of a need there was for this work until I got to college. So um, I'm a Latina. My K-12 experience, I went to schools with people like me. So the first time I stepped foot into college, um, I went to, I did my undergrad at UCLA. It was hu- a huge culture shock. I had a very rough first year. I felt like I didn't belong. I felt out of place. And it was kind of like a, a moment where I, I realized like, hey, where did, where did everyone else go? Like, how come the rest of my community didn't come here? Um, so that was, that was kind of the first time I realized that there was a problem. Um, I took education classes there. I minored in education, and so then I started learning a lot more of what was really going on behind the scenes in terms of uh, policy and um, just the K through twelve system that kind of prevents a lot of uh, people from my community to go um, to get into higher education. Um, so that coupled with some work that I did with high school students, I mentored high school students um, through a program called Mecha Chinachli, where I. Uh, did college and career readiness with them, tutoring, and just learning about some of those students' experiences. That, in addition to the, the coursework I was doing at the education department at UCLA, kind of made me realize, like, wow, this is this is bigger than me. There, there's a big uh, need to address what's really going on here. Um, so that's how I kind of just, it was through my personal experience and then through the experiences of my students and the classes I was taking at UCLA. Uh, after I graduated, from UCLA, I did. I continued doing college access work. I worked in um, public high schools. I worked in Victorville in California for two years. I loved it. I was a college advisor, but I realized that there were a lot of systemic barriers 
um, preventing students from going into higher education. So it's kind of like a big beast. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, I think that a lot more people are talking about it, but I think there's still a lot more that needs to be done. And oftentimes our community is seen as, I think we're blamed for a lot of things. We're seen as lazy or we're seen as not capable enough of going into higher education or taking up um, certain titles. But in reality, there's a lot of systemic barriers that a lot of people are not aware of that make it challenging for us to get into these spaces. Would you mind exemplifying one or two of them? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> but if we look at just the K-12 system in general, the way it's set up, it's there's a lack of um, equity. So basically, if lo- low-income students... Um, The schools, the public schools they have to go to are typically under-resourced, underfunded. Um, Just in California, for example, the average student to counselor ratio at a high school is like 800 to 1. That means there's 800 students for every counselor, which makes it impossible for students to really get access to information and resources to do well in the high school and then beyond. Um, You compare that to another neighborhood like Beverly Hills, where even though it's a public school, because of the way the funding the funding formulas are set up, um, those properties bring in more revenue into the city. So those students have access to more resources. And so it's really a matter of, you know, what zip code you're born into, and that determines what type of education you're going to have access to. Um, not only that, but if your family members didn't go into higher education, you don't have access to this information at home. So the only place where you really can get this information is in schools. However, because of all the issues that I mentioned, it's it's sometimes hard to get access to the information there. Is it frustrating that we have a public school district uh, leadership structure that is dependent on revenues? And as you stated, you have a bunch of these municipalities, townships, cities that oftentimes can't afford to, they they say they can't afford, but then there are instances in which they prioritize certain spending over another. And there are instances in which they'll override, basically, which they'll just increase the property taxes to get more money into a school system. Mm -hmm. But uh, in your experience, has there there ever been uh, public school districts that were able to meet the needs of their inequitable students? through any other means beyond just uh, raising property taxes mm-hmm. or so forth? Because I think that's one. I know that one's foundational budget tends to prioritize other things. Mm-hmm. It's not always in uh, inclusion. It's not always in providing, as you stated, access or mm-hmm. even like uh, wraparound services or you know free or reduced lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any way, like on, on any sort of line item matter, that one could really begin to... Uh, remedy these matters? I, uh, just from my professional background, I personally don't have a lot of experience um, with like administrative type of work that deals with funding. So I personally don't have too much experience in in that respect. However, from, I don't know if this is really going to answer the question, but from what I've seen in my experiences, I think there's a huge need for social services for these populations. I think a lot of these students come in with a lot of mental health issues and unfortunately there's not really an outlet or a resource on them on campuses for them to address what's going on um, and this ultimately affects their academic performance. Um, I think that's one thing. Um, yeah, I there's a lot. I think you can 
go on for days and talk about what kind of resources these students might need. Um, but to me, I think one big thing that often gets ignored is students' mental health. I, I completely agree. I, I know that when yeah. I was in college, it wasn't something that I entirely mm-hmm. was able to grasp over. But I was very mm-hmm. happy, uh, you know, being able to have some friends who were able to, like, inform me that mental health should have been mm-hmm. a priority. And I was able to really mm-hmm. maximize my learning potential and my ability to even graduate. Mm-hmm. Uh, by addressing those matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot of these populations, um, when we're talking about students that grow up in poverty, there's a lot that they're dealing with. Um, and mental health, unfortunately, is kind of like a taboo topic in those communities. Um, and so students oftentimes seek, they sometimes they, they self-medicate in unhealthy ways or they seek other outlets that aren't necessarily healthy. Um, but that's because they don't have access to these resources. So I think schools in general, at least, you know, in the K through 12 system, I think if they really tried to address some of these issues, it would definitely make somewhat of a difference in students, um, academic experiences. And I think that ultimately that's, I agree, like being able to just be a healthy person depends on Mm -hmm. your mental health and your ability to, uh, maximize your vitality the thing mm-hmm. that i find about mental health issues is that they just diminish the vitality oh, of, yeah. of, of of a body of, of, of a mind and when you bypass the care needed mm-hmm. to really do that especially for communities uh that don't really have they're they're not as uh impactful in their ability to influence that i feel like a lot of it is uh under just not spoken about and I think the unintended consequences tend to be that students fail to have some sort of support capacity when mm-hmm. they're in high high stress situations such yeah. as undergraduate um, uh, col- undergraduate environments, colleges, colleges and universities. Mm-hmm. In your experience, how has have you seen uh, really good examples of ways in which students are able to rise above uh, mental health barriers? Yeah, so I think the last job I had um, before I came to grad school, I was working at a nonprofit, um, Youth Build, um, and we serviced 16 to 24-year-olds that had a non-traditional background. Um, And at that nonprofit, they had uh, counseling services available. So student, or well, members, we didn't call them students, the members that, that came into the center um, they had access to counseling and um, they could go see uh, an outside psychologist if they needed it because this was a, a huge need in this particular community. Um, and I think I would say even all the members, anyone could benefit from mental health services. Um, but it it kind of made me think of schools, you know, because a lot of times nonprofits fill in certain gaps that schools aren't able to. And um, at least in this nonprofit, you know, mental health services were being addressed and it it did make a difference for the students. They, for some of them, it was the first time they've ever accessed mental health services and it kind of took away some of that fear of mental health. But yeah, it, it, I think there are a few nonprofits that that do that work and it's, it's important. And I'm a big fan of youth build because I'm a, because I'm a fan of non-traditional students Mm -hmm. because I myself was a non-traditional student. Mm -hmm. I, I came to Harvard University by way of the extension school mm. and it was via uh, wanting to be an artist, uh, deciding not to go to the Manhattan School of Visual Arts mm. 
and instead I moved to Massachusetts because at the age of 18, I decided I needed to leave New Jersey. Mm -hmm. I needed to start my own life. I had family in the North Shore of Massachusetts, and I would commute down, and eventually I was able to work at the university as a camera operator mm -hmm. for the math and science lectures. And I'm My heart always warms up when I hear any sort of non-traditional student path, mm -hmm. especially if they were able to uh, finish finish that yeah. degree and, and, and be able to be all the better for it and stronger mm -hmm. for it. And I think that that level of uh, conflict resolution, uh, differentiation, mm -hmm. being able to uh, rise above a certain amount of loneliness that goes into the non-traditional path mm -hmm. is crucial. But at the same time, I think that it, it is very difficult because I believe that mental health is such a crucial uh, part of seeking higher education mm -hmm. because there is that increased stress. Yeah. Is, is, are, are there any sort of, uh, is in the Harvard Graduate School of Education, mm -hmm. how have they uh, approached mental health mm -hmm. in educational settings? Is, are they, as you stated, more social services, wrap, or I, I think there's a term called wraparound services, mm -hmm. which includes out-of-school time. Mm -hmm. to address uh, working parents who may need, I mean, this is in regarding public school districts. Yeah. But in higher <clears> education, <throat> um, in, in addition to, you know, increased, uh, increased support, access, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth, how has the Harvard Graduate School of mm -hmm. Education addressed mental health matters, in I, your opinion? Yeah, I, am, I think they've taken great steps. Uh, for one, if we as student have the student health service, uh, the health insurance, um, we have access to um, mental health services. Uh, that are free. Is this at HOHS? Yeah. 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 So we have access to um, uh, mental health appointments through the insurance. In addition to that, um, there are certain therapists that have put on workshops for students um, throughout the semester. Um, they've had, I think, I don't know how often they happen, but they have like a woman of color uh destigmatizing mental health uh, series that goes on every other couple weeks, I think. Um, they have other mental health workshops for uh, students of color, students, student leaders. So it seems like they are really trying, especially when it comes to certain populations, because for us, mental health, uh, typically, there's a lot of stigma that comes along with mental health. So aside from the individual appointments we can seek out, the school is putting on workshops, um, especially for populations that traditionally would probably not seek out mental health services. So I've seen them take great steps in that direction. Yeah. That's really good. So tell me more about your background in terms of how you came to Harvard, what mm -hmm. went before. I heard that you went to UCLA, but mm -hmm. prior to that, were you a California native? Yeah. So I've lived in California my whole life, um, born and raised in Los Angeles, um, my parents, they're, they're immigrants from Mexico. They came to LA. My whole family has lived in LA. Um, so yeah, I went to UCLA for undergrad and then I knew I wanted to go to grad school. Um, I, at the time I thought I wanted to go into teaching because I enjoyed working with the, the high school students I was working with, but I decided to wait, um, just to, so that I could be a hundred percent sure that this is what I really wanted to do. So I decided to work, get some work experience got a little comfortable. Um, I actually ended up working for five years before I came back to school. Um, so a majority of the work that I did was in college access. Um, I did teach in Colombia for one year. I taught English, um, which was amazing. Um, then I came back where, and then I worked at the nonprofit where I was at. 
Um, and I, I think when I was in Colombia, I had a reality check because I had a pretty good job there. The school I was teaching at was great. Um, and I was comfortable and it was, you know, kind of one of those jobs where a lot of teachers, they strive to get that job and I already had it, I had gotten it. And I felt like if I really wanted to, I could stay. And I, if I stayed, I was going to stay. But I knew that I, I, there was more that I wanted to do. So that was kind of like my wake-up call. And I decided, okay, it's time to apply for grad school. Um, I came back to L.A. to my parents, with my parents. Um, I applied to grad school. I was looking at educational policy programs specifically because when I was an undergrad and I did the education minor, I loved the policy classes. And I actually didn't know that there were programs that would look at that would allow me to look at ed policy specifically related to college access. So that was like great because I figured that out. Um, and um, October of last during October of last year, I actually came out to Harvard. They had a diversity recruitment event. It was a weekend event. It was open to anyone. Um, the program was for anyone who identified as an part of an underrepresented population. So that could be students of color, first generation college students, students with disabilities. Um, so I was interested in the event. I I had just gotten back from Colombia a few months ago, so I was broke. So I applied to a travel fellowship that they had. They awarded me the fellowship, so they flew me out and provided housing and everything. So I came to that weekend event, um, and I loved it. They sold me there. Um, they had uh, panels with faculty, alum, and current students, and they really... Um, really reassured me that someone like me could be at Harvard because obviously there were a lot of doubts of me even considering Harvard because I, I looked at the program before and I was like, this is cool, but I don't know if I could actually get in um, because people like me don't normally get into these places. Um, so that 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 event really reassured me that I, I could that I should apply and that people like me do belong there. Uh, so then I, after that event, I applied, I got in, I got into a few other... A, couple other schools as well but I I was sold on Harvard when I came to that event in October and I actually two of my current roommates I met at that event um so I think that event for me was was critical because it reassured me to apply and it reaffirmed my decision to come here and um yeah I I've enjoyed it like it's a great yeah experience what do you envision is next for you uh as a Harvard alum (laughs) That's a good question. Um, I have an idea of what career path I, I might want to pursue. I'm not 100% sure, but as of right now, I'm thinking about going into research and policy analysis centered on college access for first-generation college students, just because I think it's one way to look at all of the structural barriers that prevent these populations from going into higher education. And I think there's not there's not enough representation of uh, people like me in those spaces. The the research conversations and policy conversations are often dominated by um, people that haven't had the experiences we have had. So um, that's that's currently what I'm I'm thinking about right now. If there's anything else, I'd like to thank you so much. Is there any way that our listeners can reach you? Sure. Um, maybe through email. <laughs> okay. Um, so my email is S Suarez. That's S S U A R E Z at G S C dot Harvard dot E D U. Awesome. Thank you so much. Sure. 
This episode was recorded at Boston Free Radio at the Somerville Media Center at Union Square. If you'd like to hear the hip-hop music that we're playing on our program, tune in on Boston Free Radio Saturdays from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. You can listen to the music live on Boston Free Radio. If you are unable to do so, don't fret. We have our Spotify playlist shown early on our Patreon. Patreon.com slash GS Hamlin for your Guaucast needs. Come on in and check out our Patreon. <laughs>